You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, it's great to be with you this morning, Harborside. I really want to extend my thanks to Dave and, uh, and the team for inviting me to be part of your worship service. I hope that it is a chance to sit under God's word and to be blessed by it in this interesting season that we're in. Uh, I myself am a scholar of the book of Revelation, and so the text that I chose for today comes from the book of Revelation, not only because I know a little something about it, but also because I think it speaks something important to our times today and is something that should encourage us at each and every moment of our journey. When I was a child, I did actually grow up in the church. Uh, Matter of fact, I was a Baptist church kid. Unfortunately, I was also bored. Now, I don't want to draw a link between being a Baptist church kid and being bored. That would be incredibly rude of me. But I'm just letting you know, I was a bored kid in church when I grew up. And one of the things I did to pass the time in those difficult days within the church was that I would read my Bible and look for the interesting bits. And I would read often select passages from the book of Revelation. Because to my childish mind, there was something kind of entertaining about a book that was filled with beasts and dragons and mysterious numbers like 666. It was a lot of fun, but it wasn't God's voice speaking to me. In fact, all I wanted was to be distracted. Now, when it comes to reading the book of Revelation, a lot of us sit in one of two groups. First of all is the group that is probably the largest who wants to avoid the book of Revelation as much as possible. Why did God have to finish his word by kind of going loopy on us? Everything was going great. We understood what you were saying in the Gospels. We understood what you were saying in those lovely letters from Paul and Peter and John. And then boom, here's a horror movie with which to end the volume. Many of us just avoid the book, but we dip into Revelation, if we must, every few years, we hold our nose and we try and get it over with. But there's another group, another group that kind of sits at the opposite extreme. These are the people who read Revelation every morning, if not every hour. These are the people who wear end is nigh sandwich boards on weekends for fun. These are people who've been doomsday prepping since 1994. Neither group's approach is actually very helpful. Avoiding revelation won't help you, and obsessing about revelation won't help you. What will help you is this, to understand that revelation is a book that was written to make disciples. Yes, it has strange language and pictures. Yes, it's not the same as reading a letter or a biography, but even though the communication mode is different, the goal of revelation is the same as every other New Testament book. Revelation wants to help you to be a follower of Jesus. Now, you might think I'm a fool because when you're struggling with your prayer life, it's rare that someone comes up to you and says, you should really read the book of Revelation. When you're struggling to be assured of God's love, it's not common for somebody to say, Revelation's your text. In fact, it seems like the only time anybody would ever recommend Revelation to you is if you developed a peculiar fascination for that topic we call the end times. How's it all going to end? That must be what the book of Revelation is all about. 
And yet that misses the point of Revelation entirely because Revelation is written to make disciples. Because even though this book talks a lot about the future, its focus is on how to live well for Jesus in the present. Because when you know how the story ends, it changes the way you live now. When you know how the story ends, it changes the way you live now. Because right now, our sense of an ending is all over the place. Our lives have been upended. Regular routines have been disturbed. I wake up each morning and I genuinely don't know what day it is, okay? Because Tuesday night feels the same as Thursday night. Uh, Friday night feels the same as Monday night. Everything seems the same. And every day we engage whatever news source we prefer and we ask this question, how's this all going to end? When is this all going to end? We're not used to these questions. I'm used to happily living in the now. I'm used to enjoying the moment. And I could do that in the past because my future seemed stable. Two months ago, I could make plans. Now I don't know how to make plans anymore. The original audience of the book of Revelation shares something with us. They were living in a world that wrestled with questions about how to secure your life, about where to place your hope. Interestingly, Revelation is written not just to one church, it's written to multiple churches, seven, all over on the western coast of Turkey, what in the ancient world was called Asia Minor. But even though it's written to seven churches, they're not all going through the exact same experience. They're not all coming at it from the same situation. Some of the churches in Revelation are experiencing suffering under the rule of the Roman Empire. Their allegiance to Jesus, their witness to him, their refusal to compromise their worship by worshipping the Roman gods has meant that these churches are suffering. So when you read Jesus' messages to churches like Smyrna and Pergamum, you see people who are suffering for the faith. But other churches in Revelation are not suffering at all. Read the words of Jesus to the churches in Laodicea or in Sardis, and you will not see Jesus comforting them in their suffering. Rather, Laodicea thinks it is rich. And Jesus says, in fact, you are poor. You are poor because you have compromised your allegiance to Jesus for the sake of temporary stability. The Laodiceans, it appears, liked living under the Roman Empire. So Revelation is this fascinating text because it addresses both the suffering and the compromising. The same vision both comforts and afflicts, depending upon where you sit. So what is it that God shows his people in Revelation, whether we are suffering or compromising or sitting somewhere else on the spiritual spectrum? What do we see and how should it change us and how should it change us in this moment? You probably already have a little idea in your head, a few stock images, some nuggets of content about what's in the book of Revelation. You probably know that it's filled with images of judgment. There's a locust here, there's a hailstone there. We know in general that Revelation is filled with images of judgment, but why would God show us images of judgment? 
Why would that help us? Well, the first thing to say is that the world, this world, is under judgment. Revelation just makes clear what is the case throughout the entirety of the Scriptures, which is that the world has been under judgment ever since sin entered into the world. And it remains the case that so long as there is evil within this world, then God's just judgment will remain and His judgment is part of how He brings justice to the world in the end. But you mustn't misconstrue this. this the fact that the world in general is under judgment doesn't mean that you can draw lines between this event and saying that is the specific judgment of God. In these last few months, we have felt intensely the curse that hangs over creation. We felt the pain and the groaning of creation with regards to the bushfires and now this virus. But even though it happened on occasion in the ministry of Israel or the times of Israel, that the ministry of the prophets to Israel was sometimes to draw links between that event and this particular idea of judgment, that is not what we are empowered to do in this moment. Our, upon, our response should not be to draw lines between this event and to say, now we know for sure that God is judging us. Our response is not to be surprised that a broken world that is cursed, is experiencing bad things, feeling it maybe more than ever before. But nevertheless, this has always been true. There is a more pointed reason, I think, why the book of Revelation shares these images of judgment. The book was written to a culture that felt like it was stable on the surface. The Roman Empire projected and advertised an image of itself that said, we can control the world in such a way that we can guarantee your flourishing. We can secure your existence. That's why, if you knew what was good for you, you'd stay loyal to the Roman Empire. That was the whole contract they had with the world. The promise was simple. Keep your allegiance to Rome and Rome will secure your existence. That is why Laodicea was compromising. They were cutting massive corners on their faith because they did not want to be seen as out of step with Rome and the society around them because stability, you know, it's kind of cool. This is not an uncommon problem. We make friends with wealth, which means cutting corners on your allegiance, but, you know, stability, certainty, funding... We make friends with power, which means toning down our witness to Jesus. But, you know, comfort is such a precious thing. Every culture offers the false promise that it can somehow secure your existence. Every culture attempts to lessen our hope in God and put our hope in something else to make us feel safe, secure and comforted. And aren't we looking for those sources right now? My hope is in my super fund, or maybe it was in my super fund. My hope is in my property portfolio, or maybe it was in my property portfolio. My hope is in my doctor, or my hope is in the government. And each of those things can be a good instrument for God doing good within the world, but none of those things can secure our existence. The images of judgment in Revelation are meant to make clear to you 
that whatever earthly thing we have put our trust in, it will not last. In the first century, Rome looked like the horse to back, but Revelation says Rome will be judged. Rome will not last. And all of those scenes in Revelation of chaos and the world falling apart force you to ask, who can really secure my life? When the chaos of the world becomes completely apparent, where is my rock? Where is my refuge? The visions of judgment in Revelation are meant to shake us awake and turn up the volume on a question we often easily suppress. Who sits upon the throne of the world? Who sits upon the throne of my life? Who is actually my rock? and my refuge. Now, we're living through a shaking up right now. We can't suppress those questions anymore. We don't have to imagine what it's like to feel instability. So what is the answer that Revelation wants to give both to its first audience and to us? If the only images we have in our mind from this book are images of judgment, We haven't read the whole of the book because Revelation is ultimately a book of hope. All throughout the book, there are these hints and gestures of where God is taking his creation. But right at the end, the passages that were read for us, something wonderful happens. In the final two chapters of Revelation, we see a glorious vision of the new creation. And now before I engage with a few of those details, I do need to say something. I need to admit to you that most people I've ever met have a really boring vision of heaven. Christians, non-Christians, people will tell to me, they'll narrate to me, they'll describe to me their vision of heaven. And at the end of it, they might say something like, don't you want to go there? And after I've heard what they've described, I'll say, no, I don't want to be in there. Please note that I don't think the Bible's picture of heaven is boring. I think that what we have construed as heaven is boring because the way the Bible portrays heaven is far better and richer and deeper than anything that I've ever heard from another human being that they've constructed in their minds. Because let's be honest, the standard stereotype of heaven is that we all float away up into the sky and sit on a cloud playing harps. And heaven always looks so white, so gleaming white, like it's an ad for bleach, like I've spent the rest of eternity in a toilet block or something like that. Now, let's be clear, I like my bathroom. I think it's a wonderful place. I don't want to spend eternity in my bathroom in a porcelain paradise. But it gets worse. One Christian person once said to me that heaven is like a church service that never ends. That's my definition of the other place. And when I ask people, what are we going to do when we're in heaven? The answer sometimes comes back very well-meaning. Well, we're going to sing praises to God, which might be good for an hour or two or even a day, but all of eternity is me rejoiced to being a voice box. This, I think, is why the poet Emily Dickinson once said, I don't like paradise because it's Sunday all the time and recess never comes. See, here's the problem. The dominant vision of heaven in our culture is that it is colourless 
disembodied and boring. Like everybody looks anemic in the paintings. It's like you look at them and you say, you need more iron in your diet. This version is insufficiently inspiring. The Canadian theologian John Stackhouse once provocatively asked an audience, who's going to want to join a movement that ends in this way? Let me ratchet up that rhetoric a little bit further. Is this an eternity worth sacrificing your present for? But the good news is that our visions of the future undersell the Bible because there are so many beautiful details in these final texts in the book of Revelation, these final passages that we need to dwell upon. Because first of all, it's a world that is portrayed for us as filled with the presence of God because God once again fully and immediately dwells with his people. Far from us going up to heaven, the final image of the scriptures is of heaven coming down to earth as God dwells with his people into eternity. And the primary blessing of the new creation, the primary joy of the new creation is God himself, his presence immediately available for us. Yes, we have the presence of the spirit in our lives in this present moment. But the scriptures always describe that as a taster, an appetizer, a down payment, not the full inheritance. In the new creation, we will fully engage with the presence of God. And that is the chief blessing of it. Second, and this speaks to our hearts so powerfully in this present age, it's a world where pain and tears have become an impossibility. God says that he will wipe away every tear. But perhaps even sweeter, in chapter 22, it describes a world where it says there is no longer any curse. The groaning of creation that has been there since Genesis 3 will end. We presently feel that groaning of creation. We presently feel the brokenness of the world. But here pictured for us is creation being liberated from its bondage to decay. The third joyous truth about the new creation that we see pictured here in Revelation is that it's a vision of creation perfected, not creation rejected. It says, I am making everything new. Not all new things, but I am making everything new. In the very beginning, God had made a good world in which he would dwell with his people. And the Garden of Eden is the prototype of what the world is meant to be like. And in Revelation, we see the promise of Eden fulfilled, no longer a small garden, but now the gigantic garden city. And it's a world of colour and of beauty and of light. And it's a world of physicality without decay. See, the problem with the earth is not the earth per se, as if it's an inherently bad place to live. The problem with the earth is that it has been cursed. It has been corrupted by sin and death. But the world we all want is a renewed earth. In Tolkien's grand epic, The Lord of the Rings, the character of Sam Ganji at one stage asks Gandalf the question. He says, is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? The world we want is a world where everything sad has come untrue, where God's intentions for creation have completely and finally come to pass. 
And that is what is pictured for us here. Creation perfected, not rejected. Fourth, this is a world that is secure. When it says in Revelation 21.2 that there was no longer any sea, it strikes fear into the heart of surfers and sailors everywhere. Say it ain't so, Mark. Say there'll be water in the new creation. But in the mind of Israel, the sea was not something that you enjoyed recreation on. The sea was a symbol of chaos. It was a symbol of threat, of evil. That's why you have images of floods and seas raging as a common stock image of turmoil in Israel's poetry. The presence of a sea would be a perpetual possibility of threat. But in God's new creation, there is no longer any threat. There is an entire security to this new world. So the book of Revelation ends with a stunning vision of a perfected new creation, filled with God's presence and entirely secure. It's the final piece of evidence of how good our God is, that he realises his goals for creation by triumphing over sin, death and the devil. And right now, I don't know about you, but I'm longing for that world. I'm sitting here in the midst of chaos and confusion and that's the world I want. But apart from stoking my longing for a better place, how does this vision of the future help me live well in the present? And how can it keep me living well in the present even when everything returns back to quote-unquote normal? The accusation often is that Christians are pie in the sky when I die people. They're people who kind of dream up this utopia in their brains, that somehow thinking about the future will drain away your relevance in the present because you'll just sit around daydreaming all day. But that's not why God has shown us the future. God has shown us the future so that we would live boldly in the present. And there's a number of ways this helps us. The first way that this vision helps us is that it helps us lament and grieve our present moment. There's a strand of Christian thinking that regards our bodies as unimportant vessels in God's plans and that our soul is the only thing that matters. So when you get to a moment like we have been experiencing where a disease is ravaging bodies the world over, a trite Christian response might be that it's only the soul that matters. But God's Word says no such thing. God's Word says that our bodies are important. In fact, the Bible laments the impact of our sin upon the physical reality of creation, whether that be the non-human creation around us or even our bodies. We were made to enjoy embodied life disease-free, enjoying the presence and the reign of God. And the hope of a new creation actually helps us to properly cry now. We groan together with creation, not because we want to be rid of our bodies, but because we know this is not the way things are supposed to be. And we lament and we genuinely see the tragedy of what it's like to live in a broken world. 
And as we seek to care for our own body or the bodies of others, we live with anticipation of the news that God will redeem the bodies of those who are in Christ. And at the same time, we do not grieve, though, as those who have no hope. We lament and groan, but we do not despair. Which leads me to my second point. A full-bodied hope for the new creation is the way that I can learn how to sacrifice my present comfort. A number of years ago, there was a popular acronym out there, YOLO. You only live once. It's been replaced in more recent times with FOMO, fear of missing out. But both of these acronyms, to some degree, assume that your life is threatened by mortality in such a way that if you don't live for the now, you will lose, you will miss out because evidently there is no future hope. When people lose their hope in a future life, it brings a corresponding panic in the present. You have to make heaven now because you only live once. This is your only chance, so I have to travel to every continent. I have to consume every exotic food, no matter what the cost, because this is the only time I'll get to enjoy creation. And so when you have travel bans and lockdowns and restaurants closing, that kind of threatens my sense of self and identity. Who am I if I can't experience everything I can possibly experience right now? It feels like my significance in life is frittering away. Because when you only have one temporary life to live, it becomes very hard to give that life away. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, is the line that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised from the dead. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, then a whole new kind of generosity and sacrifice is possible. When you look at the sacrificial acts of Christians throughout the ages, part of what drives them to be so sacrificial is the knowledge that they can give their lives away because they know that God will raise them up on the last day. Then we can go to 1 Corinthians 15 verses 30 to 32 where Paul says, and as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What Paul is saying is that his generous life only makes sense because the resurrection is true and the new creation is real. There is nothing you can lose which God will not restore to you and more in the new creation. In this present moment, as we cancel our holidays and as, as, as we lose our Saturday morning brunch, or perhaps far, far worse, as we lose our jobs, or perhaps even a family member has become sick, we're in a time where you could justifiably complain and whinge. There's plenty to complain about. 
Nobody expects you to be generous and self-sacrificial in this moment. Nobody is expecting you to do anything other than to keep a tight grip on your money and a tight grip on your generosity because you don't know what's coming down the track and who would be mad enough to give themselves away in such a situation as this. The people who follow the way of Jesus don't conform to expectations. The way of Jesus is not tied to our circumstances. It's not the case that the Scriptures call us to be generous when it all looks okay. It's not the case that the Scriptures call us to be sacrificial so long as it doesn't cost you too much. In every situation, in every context, in every moment and circumstance, God enables us to follow Him in the ways of His Son as we worship Him and love our neighbour. So in every situation, God enables us to take the little we have and to do a lot with it. And part of the reason we can do that is that our future is as bright as the promises of God. See, if you live out of a story where the present looks better than the future, that's going to lead you to hold fast to the present. But when you become convicted that God's future is so much better than our present, then present sufferings can be seen for what they are, light and momentary. And there's nothing you can lose that cannot be made up for in the experience of God in the new creation. This is the time when you can give your life like you can. It is always the time to be able to give your life in worship to God and service to your neighbour. You aren't going to miss out if you loosen your grip. You aren't going to miss out if you are generous even in this time of trial. For what God has planned for us is meant to assure us in our hearts of what is truly stable and to orient us now to live in the present whether things are going well or things are going poorly to enable us to reflect the way of Christ in any and every circumstance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness towards us. We thank you that you love us and that you did not give up on your world when we turned our backs on you and that you have sent your Son to not only forgive our sins but also to reconcile all things in heaven and earth. And you did that through the cross and the resurrection and that that speaks a certain hope, a hope that can transcend whatever struggle we are in right at this moment and a hope that can fire us with a life of generosity and service to others even in the difficult times. Unleash in us a passion to look for the opportunity to serve others even as it is difficult to know what is going on with us even as we might be experiencing poverty or lack or an experience that is somehow difficult and we need to cry out and lament, help us to recognise that even in our weakness, we can express your grace. Even in our weakness, we can reflect your son. Even in our weakness, we can still follow his way to your glory for the good of others. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.